Good afternoon, church. Hope you're all having a wonderful week. Today's passage comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 50. I'd like to invite you all to please stand on your feet as we all honour the word of the Lord together. And church, let's all read this passage together on a count of three. One, two, three. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and him over to the Gentiles. I'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want from me to do for you? And he said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant of James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be your first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him, and they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You guys going to be seated? All right, I have a long passage today, but hopefully not a long sermon. We'll see. Now, have you ever heard someone tell a story that begin with, back in the day? Okay? Now, my dad used to tell me that back in the day, he used to be in shape, and he was very popular among girls. Now, you guys are grown up, you can decide for yourself whether he's telling the truth or not. But because I'm a good son, I choose to believe him. See, there are times that whenever people tell me the back in the day stories, you know, I wanted to say, 
You know what? I know that you were great before, but come on, man, move on. It's been like what? 15, 20 years. But you know what? These days, I catch myself saying things like, you know what? Back in the day, I was a pretty good athlete. I can run 100 meters in 12 seconds. Now, do you know why I say that? Because today, I can't even run 50 meters without stopping, right? And I believe that all of us have good old days. If you are under 20, your time is coming. If you are in your 20s, enjoy it. If you are in your 30s, you miss it. If you are 40 and above, you exaggerate it, right? Here's my point. Inside every single person, there's seed of greatness. I mean, none of us want our life to be mediocre, none. We want our life to matter. I mean, in the book that we read um, for Book Club one at a time, Carl Adamant began by saying, by asking the question, really, no one grows up dreaming of waking up, going to work, scrolling through Instagram, watching Netflix, playing games, and then doing it all over again until their last breath. Now, do you know why? Because all of us, whether we realize it or not, we are created in the image of God. So that means we are created in the image of the most glorious, greatest being in the universe. And that is why there's an innate desire within all of us for greatness. We want to be a difference maker. But the question is, how do we become great? That's the question. Because the world tells us that greatness equals power. The more power you have, the more status you have, the more achievement you have, the more successful you are, the greater you become. Isn't that true? But the Bible tells us otherwise. Because think about it. In the light of human history, your life and my life are very insignificant. I mean, you might accomplish many great things in 30 and 70 years of your life, but it won't be long before people forget your name. Isn't that true? It won't be long. In 50 years' time, no one will remember you. I mean, you might be very rich, right? And then you might decide to create a statue of yourself so that your family will remember you. Your great-grandchildren will know your name. But let me tell you, in 100 years, that statue will be gone. No one will remember you. Or let's say you become a king and rule over the world. I guarantee you, no one will remember you in a thousand-year time. It does not matter how hard we try. Eventually, no one will remember us. So that means the greatness that we achieve is fleeting and meaningless because it's only a matter of time before it becomes back-in-the-day story. It does not satisfy us. Why? Because in this passage, Jesus will tell us what is true greatness. And he will turn the equation upside down because here's what we must get. Greatness is not achieved through power, but through service. It is not about commanding others, but serving others, okay? Now, let me give you the context of the passage first. So remember from last week, Jesus has just finished talking to the rich young man, and now Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. And Jesus knows exactly what's waiting for him in Jerusalem because he's about to enter the enemy's territory. And that is why if you pay attention to the book of Mark, from this point forward, the narrative of the book of Mark changes from the identity of Jesus to the purpose of Jesus toward the cross. 
And right before he entered Jerusalem, Jesus tell the disciple the last, the third, and the final prediction of his death and resurrection. And this is the most explicit one. And after that, Mark will record the last healing Jesus performed, the healing of a blind beggar. And sandwiched between the two, there's a Jesus conversation with his disciple about greatness. Now, what's the point of all of this? All of this, I believe Mark put all them together to show that Jesus is the greatest person ever lived. But he achieved greatness, not by becoming someone that, you know, commanded command his authority over others. No, no. He achieved greatness by becoming the lowest servant who served others by giving his life. So that means if we want to follow Jesus to greatness, we also must serve others with our life. Okay, I only have three points. Greatness predicted, greatness defined, greatness displayed. Let's cut the first one. Greatness predicted, verse 32 to 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who were followed were afraid. And talking and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was happened to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, can you see from this passage how determined Jesus is to go to the cross? Because most of us, can we agree? If we know we are going to our death, we will delay the process as long as possible, right? But Jesus, he knew exactly what waited for him in Jerusalem. He knew that he's going to die. But he's just so resolute about going to Jerusalem to the point that the disciples are amazed. Why? Because they know what's happening in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the enemy headquarter. And they know the religious leaders hate Jesus so bad. And now Jesus is heading to Jerusalem knowing exactly what will happen to him. And my friend, I think this is what separates Christianity from every, every other religion. Because every other religious leaders, their death is the tragic end of their story. Their focus is to live and be an example. And their death marks the end of their mission, right? But Jesus is different. Like for us, death is an avoidable outcome that we fear. But for Jesus, death is always his purpose in coming to earth. I mean, this is the day that he's been anticipating, the day of his death, because that is the purpose he came to earth, to die at the cross, because Jesus knew exactly by his death, we will live. Now, however, how radical is that? So then Jesus gathered disciples, right? And Jesus told them in explicit detail what's going to happen. So he said, hey guys, when we get to Jerusalem, here's what's going to happen. They will capture me. They will deliver me to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn me to death and deliver me over to Pilate. And they will mock me, flog me, spit on me, and kill me on the cross. But don't worry, on the third day, I will rise. Now, can you see how detailed the description Jesus gave? It means, it tells us, there's nothing about the cross that surprises Jesus. I mean, he predicts the exact detail of his own death and resurrection. 
And let me tell you, if there's any one of, only one of us that can predict their own death and resurrection, whatever you say, I will follow. The cross is not an accident. From this story, we know that the cross is something that God has planned from before the foundation of the world. I mean, the religious leaders and the Roman authorities might think that they have the upper hand on Jesus, but they don't. I mean, they have no authority over Jesus because God is the one who delivered Jesus into their hand. God is the one who planned out every detail of Jesus' death and resurrection before the foundation of the world. This means there are no surprises in the cross. The cross is not a defeat. It is a defined orchestra. And here's the good news for us. Just as God has orchestrated every single step of Jesus' life, God has orchestrated every single step of our life. There's no such thing as accident for God. God has planned our life to the last detail. Here might be some question then that we might ask from this text. Because when we read Jesus, God's plan for Jesus' death and resurrection, some of us might ask, well, if God is a loving God, why will He do that? Why will God send Jesus to die on the cross? I mean, why can't just God forgive everybody? Easy peasy, right? And here's why. Here's something that we understand intuitively. We know that all life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. Let me repeat that. We know that all life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. Okay, let me give you an example. Parenting, okay? Parents, how do you love your children? Do you know how? By dying. See, when you have children... Your children do not grow up automatically, right, parents? They have so many needs, and they cannot do anything on their own. They are fully dependent on you. And the only way for them to grow beyond their dependency is for you to abandon your independent for 20 years or so. All of you are my parents, 36 years and counting, right? (laughs) But when they're young, you have to do so many things for them. For example... You have to read to them. You have to read to them again and again or else they won't develop intellectually. Right? And you have to read them so many boring books, books about dumb things that do not even matter. Except the book that I gave you for sure. Right? And you can't just do it once. You have to read the same book again and again and again and again. It's boring. And there's also dressing, batting, feeding, teaching them to do many things for themselves, plus taking care of them when they're sick. And when they're sick, they become very clingy. And then you have to sacrifice more of your free time, sleep, work, productivity, and health. Because when they're sick, you tend to get sick as well. Some of you are like, babe, honey, yobo, is he talking about our family? But unless you make all those sacrifices, parents, unless you are willing to disrupt your life, unless you let go of your freedom, your children will not grow up to be a healthy adult. Because if you don't make those sacrifices, you know who will? Your children will. They will not grow up to be a proper adult. So the choice is either you make a sacrifice or they are going to make the sacrifice someday. It's you 
or them. Either you suffer temporarily in a redemptive way, or they are going to suffer in a destructive way. All life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. That's why it makes sense. When God wants to express His love to us, He will make the greatest substitutionary sacrifice to love us. Now, can you see what happened? Jesus didn't have to die despite God's love. Oh, no. Jesus must die because of God's love. And look at the second one. Then Jesus began to define what is greatness. Verse 35 to verse 37. And James and John, the son of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, can you imagine the scene with me? I mean, talk about missing the point. Jesus just told them what's going to happen to him. And we will think like the disciples were like, oh my gosh, Jesus, you are so amazing. We're just going to worship you and adore you. No. But what happened is the opposite. The disciples do not get the message. So John and James come to Jesus and say, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Now, how many of you realize this is not a request? You know what this is? A demand. This is what a wife does to her husband. When the wife says, honey, I want to talk to you about something. But before I do that, you must agree to whatever I'm about to tell you. This is what John and James does to Jesus. And I, I don't think it's only them, but us as well. Isn't that true? When we pray to God, we say, Lord, God, I'm about to pray for something, but I want you to do exactly as I tell you. That's what we do. So Jesus asked the question, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, God, Jesus, we want the best seat in the house when you become king. One in your right and one in your left. Now, if you're not shaking your head, you're not paying attention. Because Jesus just told them what? Guys, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me and they're going to kill me. And now the two of his closest disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, can we become the prime minister and the chief of staff in your kingdom? We want the top seat in your house. Is that okay with you? Other gospel writers tell us it's actually their mom that leads the church. So she said to Jesus, Jesus, I would like you to give my kids the best seat in the house. They're good boys. I can fight for them. Now, I don't know about this, right? I could be wrong, but I think, I think their mom might be Asian. <laughs> can you see what happened here? Because instead of showing concern for Jesus, they're concerned about their position in Jesus' kingdom. They said, we want power, we want status, we want position. So they acknowledge that Jesus is Messiah, but they are still clueless what kind of Messiah He is. They think that He came to overthrow the Roman government and set up the new kingdom of Israel. They desire greatness so much to the point that they don't even hear what Jesus told them. They care about their glory more than Jesus' glory. And there's nothing wrong, my friend. Let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with desiring greatness. But sin has made us blind to what 
true greatness actually is. We think greatness is when we get the seat of power and status. But that is not greatness. The desire to have the right seat is pride. Okay? It's like this. It's like going to wedding reception at which we have no significance at all. And we have to look and find our table number. Anyone been there? Okay. Let me give you some words from my own experience. Don't start at table one and walk down. Start at table 20 and walk up. Trust me, it saves you a lot of pain. But let me tell you something about us. We are smarter than John and James. Because John and James just blatantly said, Lord, this is what we want. But you and I, no, 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 no. We have our ways to cover our selfishness and make it sound spiritual. Am I right? One time, I read it um, somewhere in the internet. One time, a girl calls her boyfriend, who she just dumped a month earlier. She said, hi, Dave. I've been thinking a lot about you. I've been thinking of the time we spent together, the memories we had, the laughter we enjoy, and I really miss it. I miss everything about you. I miss cooking for you. I miss going on a trip with you. I miss watching Netflix with you. I miss you, and I just want you to know that I want to get back together with you. And Dave, by the way, congratulations for winning the lottery. You see what happened? That is exactly what we do. We are expert at hiding our true motive and making it sound like it's God-glorifying. What we desire is actually our own glory. Let's continue what happened. Verse 38 to verse 40. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So Jesus tells John and James directly, guys, you guys do not know what you're asking for. All right, you want the glory, that's fine. But don't you know that glory comes with cross? There's no glory without the cross. So can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with my baptism? And you know what they say? Yes, we can. And Jesus probably sighed as a summer. All right. You will indeed partake in the suffering that I'm going through. Now remember what Jesus said to his disciples before. Jesus said clearly that everyone who wants to follow Jesus must deny themselves and do what? Carry the cross. So everyone who decided to follow Jesus will drink the cup that Jesus drink and will be baptized with the baptism of suffering that Jesus is going through. However, the kind of suffering that we are going through and Jesus is going through are different. Jesus went through a cosmic suffering to endure the punishment of sin so that when you and I suffer, we may become like Jesus. Different kind of suffering, but we will suffer. So Jesus continued, you will suffer but your suffering does not guarantee the best spot in my kingdom because it's not mine to grant. Those spot has been reserved by my Father for whom he has been prepared from the eternal past. To which we might ask the question, who, who, who? And God might say, don't be capable, guys. 
It's not for you to know. It's been reserved by my Father. And one day, we will find out. But here's one thing that I'm sure of. People whom we think are going to be in those special spots are not going to be there. And the most unlikely people we could ever think of, most likely, probably, will be there. Do you know why? Because that's how the kingdom of God operates. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And Jesus emphasized that point in what happened next. Verse 41 to 44. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and their great one exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. Now, I, I love this humor scene, right? When the other ten disciples hear it, they're upset, indignant with Jordan James. Do you know why? They're not upset because they think John and James are being rude to Jesus. Oh, no, no, no. So they're not saying, seriously, guys, I cannot believe you just asked Jesus for a place of status and power. I mean, did you not hear what he just said? He's going to die. He just told us he's about to die, and now you ask him for position on his right and left? How oblivious are you? They're not saying that. You know what they say? How dare you ask for a seat in his right and left? What give you the right to ask? Because we want it as well. See, they're upset because John and James beat them to it. And these are the future leaders of the church, guys. They are the ones that will continue Jesus' missions in the future. I think of it this way. I imagine talking to RSL leaders, right, and telling them, beloveds. Okay, that's how I usually start my WhatsApp chat. Beloveds. I have important news to tell you. I have terminal illness, and I'm dying. And I only have a few weeks to live. So I'm going to trust the future of our side into your hand. And they reply, which one of us get to keep your Toyota 86? Because that's what's happening. The disciples are upset because they want the best seat in Jesus' kingdom. But Jesus, being the great teacher he is, he does not waste this opportunity, but rather he uses it to teach the disciple the true value of the kingdom of God. Because he said, guys, you got the whole kingdom of God wrong. Because the way the kingdom of God operates is very different from the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world operates in such a way that rulers who have authority use their authority to command others. They use their power to dominate others, but not in my kingdom. In my kingdom, if you want to be great, you must be a servant. If you want to be first, you must be a slave of all. In other words, Jesus is not opposed to greatness. He does not condemn them for wanting to be great, for wanting to be first. But he tells them that the recipe for greatness is radically different from what they have in mind. The recipe for greatness is not to be great, but to be a servant. It's not to be first, but to be a slave of all. 
And this is the upside down value of the kingdom of God. And let me tell you, I do not like this text. Can I be honest with that? I do not like it. You know why? Because I like to be served. I don't like to serve. I like to tell people what to do. I don't like to be told what to do. I like to play by the rule book of the kingdom of this world rather than the kingdom of God. But Jesus is very clear here, but if we are part of his kingdom, we don't go by the value of this world. Because here's what we must get. In the kingdom of God, greatness is found in service rather than power, prestige, and authority. Honor is found in giving, not getting. And that is why the way up in the kingdom of God is down. The way up, no. The way up is down. Upside down value. If you want to be great, then go and serve other people. This is how we become great in the kingdom of God. Now, can you see how radically different the value is to the kingdom of the world? And let me tell you, it never goes well. It never goes well when the church seeks position of honor and influence in the society. How do I know? Read church history. Every time the church to be socially acceptable, intellectually affirmable, and regarded as significant by the world, it never ends well. Because the power of the church lies precisely in its counter-cultural value. The church doesn't become great by becoming like the world, no, no, but by serving the world with the gospel. Let me repeat that. The church doesn't become great by becoming like the world, but by serving the world with the gospel. In fact, if you don't like to read, you don't even have to read church history. All you have to do is pay attention to what happened in the last five years. We have so many sad examples of mega churches that exploded because they tried to operate like the world. They gain influence and they use their power to dominate others and it's not going to work. You know why? Because it's the opposite of what Jesus does. Look at what happened in verse 45. It's beautiful. He just give us the reason why greatness comes through serving. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for money. I mean, not for money, for many. <laughs> many and money, similar. If there's anyone that deserves to be served, can we agree with Jesus? He is the radiance of the glory of God in flesh. He is the creator of the universe. Colossians said that everything exists because of Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. So that means there's no one higher than Jesus. But then Jesus said, I came not to, be, not to be served, but to serve. And the word serve literally means, you know what? Wait on tables. So imagine that. Imagine you go to a restaurant, and the waiter comes to your table and say, Hi, my name is Jesus. What can I get you? How can I serve you? And you're like, what? What? Your name is Jesus? As in Mexican Jesus? And he said, no, no, no. I'm Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What can I get you? I am here to serve you. And I realized this sounds heretical, but my friend, this is Christianity. Christianity is God came to us not to be served by us, but to serve us. 
Jesus came to be the lowly servant who gave his life for us. So which means, it means that in our relationship with Jesus, listen to this, we are not primarily serving Jesus. Jesus is serving us. Now there's place where we are serving Jesus, but we are serving Jesus because Jesus has served us first. So something that radical about Christianity is that you and I, the fact that we are Christian today, is because Jesus is constantly serving us. And let me tell you why this is good news. Because I think the reason many of us are exhausted and tired in our walk with God, because we put on ourselves impossible burden for us to carry. We think Jesus needs our help. We think Jesus needs us to serve Him but we get it wrong because Jesus does not need us to serve Him. He's not seeking people who want to serve Him. He's seeking people who wants to be served. This is Christianity. And this is why Christianity is very radical because every other religion said that what? In order for you to make God happy, you have to serve Him. But Christianity tells us that God, our God is a happy God who find delight not in serving, not, not in, ser- in to be served, but in serving those who are needy. Because the gospel tells us, the gospel is not Jesus' love to be served. The gospel is Jesus' love to serve. We don't come to Him to serve Him. We come to Him to be served by Him. Okay, let me give you a couple of examples. Some of you are like, what? Think about it. How do you become Christian? What happened? Christian life begins when we realize, I have sinned against God. I have sinned against the Holy God, and there's nothing I can do to make me right with God. It doesn't matter how often I go to church. It doesn't matter how many times I read the Bible. It doesn't matter how many times I pray every single day. It doesn't matter what, kind, how much, how, what the amount of good works that I do. Nothing can cover my sins before God. It means that my only hope is to know that God must do something on my behalf. That means I need God to serve me. That means I need God to come to my rescue. I need God to forgive me of my sin and free me from the bodies of sins. And here's what Jesus said. This is exactly what I came. I came to serve you. I came to give my life as a payment for sins. I came to die on your behalf. And the moment we let Jesus serve us, we're not only forgiven of our sins, we are given Jesus' perfect righteousness. And that's not stop there. Okay, sometimes we think, all right, I get it, that's the gospel, yes, you, you repeat that every week, I get it. But sometimes we think that's it. And from that moment, it suddenly changed. Now I need to serve God. Oh no, my friend, listen. Christian life is a daily life of being served by Jesus. The Christian life is a life dependent on Jesus. What is prayer? Prayer is a way for us to say, Lord, I can't. I cannot do this by all my own strength. I need your help. I need you to help me. I need you to serve me. That's prayer. How do we read the Bible? Let's be honest. How many of you ever fallen asleep while reading the Bible? Leviticus, anyone? Deuteronomy? Chronicles? Why? Because you and I can read the Bible 
and gain nothing because it's just empty. In order for us to gain something from the Bible, in order for us to behold God's beauty in the Bible, God needs to serve us. He needs to open our eyes to see and behold His beauty in the Bible, and that's how we are transformed. How do we battle sins in our daily life? Let me tell you how. We cannot. The reason why we keep failing again and again is because we still rely on our strength. But what we need in order to fight sin in our life is we need God to serve us. We need God to remind us of the glorious promise that He has given us in the Bible and show us the empty promise of sin. We need God to constantly serve us. And this is the heart of Christianity. This is the gospel. We do not come to Jesus to receive from Jesus, not to give to Jesus. We come to Jesus to receive from Jesus. And that is why Jesus is the lowliest servant of all. No one, we cannot outdo him. We cannot outserve him. He is the lowliest of servants. And Eve at the heart of the gospel is a man who gave his life to serve others. Then the way we become great is through giving our life to serve others. And then he exemplified it for us in verse 46 to verse 50. And they came to Jericho, and he was leaving Jericho with his disciple and a great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came Jesus. Now, this is the last miracle story in the book of Mark. And Jesus used this story as example of serving other people. Now, what's interesting about this miracle is this. We are given the name of the person who received the miracle. Isn't that strange? Because usually, every time Mark recorded a miracle, we never get to know the recipient names. But in this case, we know the name of the person is Bartimaeus. And there's a stark contrast between him and the disciples. Bartimaeus is a blind beggar. Now, we know that a blind person is helpless. A blind person cannot do anything on his own. He relies on the kindness of other people to help him to survive. So one day, Bartimaeus, as he begged to make money, he heard that Jesus is passing by. Now, we do not know how he hears about Jesus. But he knows enough to know that Jesus is not someone ordinary. That's why he cried to Jesus. You know what he cried? Son of David, have mercy on me. And this is important because son of David is another title for Messiah. In other words, he calls him what? Messiah. Somehow he put the two and two together and concluded that Jesus must be Messiah sent by God. And all he asks of Jesus is mercy. And this is different from John and James. When John and James think of Jesus' messiahship, they think of power, status. 
when Bartimaeus think of Jesus' messiahship, he think of mercy. He's helpless and he needs Jesus to serve him. And he cried out, Jesus, the Messiah, have mercy on me. And when the crowd hear him, the crowd say, who do you think you are? You're just a blind beggar. Why do you think Jesus will have anything to do with you? Just be quiet. Here's 50 cents. Stop making noise. Be quiet. But Bartimaeus is desperate. The more people tell him to shut up, the louder he shouts. And what's amazing is what happens next. In the midst of all that, Mark records to us, Jesus stops. Now, can you imagine? Think about it. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way to give his life for the sins of the world. But then he hears someone cry out for mercy, and he stops, which tells us something about the heart of our Messiah. Even on his way to the cross, Jesus is not too busy to stop for Bartimaeus. Jesus stopped for the lowliest of the law. He stopped for a poor and powerless person. And he said, someone's crying out for mercy. Bring him to me. And what the funny thing about the crowd is, you know, before he's like, Bartimaeus, shut up. Bartimaeus, be quiet. And I'm like, oh, Bartimaeus, this is your lucky day. Jesus wants to see you. So one moment they tell him to shut up. The moment they're cheering, for, next moment they're cheering for him. So Bartimaeus quickly get up and come to Jesus. And it's what happened. Beautiful, verse 51 and 52. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So when Jesus is face to face with Bartimaeus, you know what he asks? A very familiar question. Because it's the very same question he asked James and John. And that question is this. What do you want me to do for you? But the answer is very different. John and James say what? We want power. We want honor. Bartimaeus simply asked Jesus, I want to be able to see. I need you to help me recover my sight. I need you to serve me. And Jesus said, go your way. Your faith has met you well. And immediately, Bartimaeus recovered his sight. The blind man can see at that very moment. And here's what's beautiful. Jesus tells a man who's been blind for the, you know, most of his life, go your way. Now, if I were him, I would choose to go and enjoy my new sight. YOLO, right? I will travel all around the world. I will go traveling, sightseeing, and just enjoy my life. But not with this guy. The moment Bartimaeus opened his eye, the first thing he sees is the face of Jesus. He sees the face of his merciful Savior, and he is sold. He will not go anywhere. From that moment forward, Bartimaeus followed Jesus on the road to Calvary. And here's why I'm telling you all this. Because many scholars believe that the only reason Mark gave us his name 
is because Bartimaeus become one of the most prominent figures in the early church. And it happened because Jesus stopped for the lowliest of law and served that person with mercy. My friend, this is greatness. So let me close with this. All of us are like Bartimaeus. We were blind until Jesus stopped and showed us mercy. We were blind until Jesus gave us sight. We were poor beggars until He became our ransom and served us. We had nothing and Jesus served us with grace. So praise God that Jesus stopped for Bartimaeus. Praise God that Jesus stopped for you and me. And the beauty of the gospel is the same Jesus who stopped for Bartimaeus still stopped for anyone who called on his name. And the question is, have you called out to him? Because imagine how tragic tragic this story will be if Bartimaeus heard of Jesus walking by, but he never cried out to him in faith. If he did not raise his voice at that very moment, you know what happened? He will have missed the moment of his life. He will have missed the chance to receive sight and he will have been lost forever. Do not do that. Because today the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus has come your way. And the question is, will you call out to him in faith? Will you ask him, son of David, have mercy on me? Because here's what I know about Jesus. Jesus still here. Jesus still cares. Jesus still stops. And Jesus still safe. And all who call upon the name of the Lord will be safe. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. Not only that you showed us the counter-cultural value of the kingdom of God, the upside-down value of the kingdom of God, not only you, you, only you tell us what greatness is in your kingdom, but you exemplify it for us, Lord. You lift it out in order for us to know and see that this is what greatness looks like. And if we ever wonder what greatness looks like, all we have to do is look at your son, Jesus Christ. That he, being the greatest king in the universe, being the one who is clothed in glory from eternity past, yet he became the lowliest of servants and gave his life for us. So that today, every poor beggar, every blind man who cry out in the name of Jesus will be saved. So I ask God, if there's any of us in this place or tuning in online that we have yet to cry out to you, I pray that today we do not miss the chance to cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And we will hear the shout of heaven say, I will be merciful. Because the cross, the cross is the guarantee that Jesus will save those who call out his name. And this is our confidence. And this is the way that we live our Christian life. Knowing that we do not first and foremost serve you. 
but you first and foremost serve us, God. Help us to live in that reality. Help us to delight in what you've done for us. And may we find strength to continue to serve others because you have first served us. And we ask this in the name of beloved Son Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.